Hey church, welcome to an online worship service. Uh, this week marks a somewhat dubious anniversary. It's the first year uh, anniversary of when this whole COVID thing started. Uh, if you remember, remember, it was like March 12th that everything started getting shut down, including we suspended uh, weekend services. So I just wanted to acknowledge a, a couple things. One, uh, if you haven't been back to the church yet, it feels pretty great at church on Sunday mornings outside. No pressure. We want to acknowledge and honor that everybody's in really different space, but man, it's, it's feeling pretty good. Um, if, when, if and when y'all feel like coming back. Um, the second thing is, actually, I just want to acknowledge all of you out there in uh, internet land that watch these videos. For weeks on end, I would stand up here because, you know, it's just us in the empty room, so it's a little surreal when we do this. And we pray every week that it will kind of reach through the editing process and through the internet, and by the time it actually reaches you, that it will be a Holy Spirit worship time, even though we're here and you're there and all that kind of stuff. The only way that's going to happen is through God's presence. But um, over the weeks and the months that have followed, I've ran into so many of you uh, just around town, and, and I just want to thank you for the encouragement that you've been. Every time someone tells me, oh, we love the online service, it means so much, it, it makes this process really meaningful for us. So I just want to say thank you. We see you. We love you. Um, and uh, we can't wait to all be back together again when this thing has finally passed by. Amen? Let's praise the Lord. Here we go.
Oh 
sent the darkness running out of an empty grave. Now seated alone in glory, enthroned on the highest praise. You sent the darkness running out of an empty grave. Now seated alone in glory, enthroned on the highest praise. You sent the darkness running. Seated alone in glory, enthroned on the highest place. You sent the darkness running out of an empty grave. Now seated alone in glory, enthroned on the highest place. You sent the darkness running out of an empty grave. Now seated alone in glory, enthroned on the Chad and team, you guys are amazing. Love that last song, by the way. Well, hey, everybody. It is great to see you on the interwebs yet again. Uh, it is so good to be with you week in and week out. My name's Josh. I have a couple of announcements for you, things going on. First and foremost, if there's anything that we could be praying for you for this week, we would love to do that. Text any prayer request to 97000. Legitimately, we will pray for those this week. So anything, nothing is too small. Send it over. That would be awesome. 
Gentlemen, our men's breakfast is coming up next Saturday, March 20th. Lots of delicious food, lots of fun, lots of hanging out with the guys. Please go and get signed up online. We need to know as soon as possible how many we are providing food for. So go ahead and get signed up for that ASAP. Marriage Essentials is coming up next Sunday, March 21st during the 9 a.m. hour with the risers. It's going to be a great time. We hope to see you there. Then coming up in two weeks on Saturday, March 27th, we have our Easter extravaganza for the kiddos at 9.30 here on campus. Easter egg hunt, live petting zoo, lots of good stuff. Bring the kiddos over for that. That's going to be a ton of fun. There are so many ways for you to get plugged in here at ABF if you are ready. We've got life groups. We've got Bible studies. We've got stuff for students. We've got stuff for children, all ages. We need help in tech. If there is any way that you're interested in getting plugged in, please contact us. We'd love to get you up and running. Finally, thank you so much for your continued giving. You can give online or mail in a check. We really do appreciate your faithfulness so, so much. And now, without further ado, we have Pastor John. Well, welcome, ABF Online. It's so good to be with you. We're in John 17, John 17. So go ahead and turn there. And I got to tell you right now, if you haven't already downloaded the outline, you might want to pause the video, go get your notes, because you're on for a ride today. I want to talk about this whole idea of WWJP. What would Jesus pray? You say, wait, wait, I've heard something like that. Yeah, you did. Some of you read this book as a kid. It's called In His Steps, and the subtitle is What Would Jesus Do? It was written in 1887 by Charles Sheldon, a Topeka pastor, uh, pastor in Topeka, Kansas, and uh, he wrote that book. And then a hundred years later in the in the 90s, 1990s, these bracelets were everywhere. I think Matt, I think Doug, I think Sabrina, they all had them, right? And uh, it spawned this movement to ask the question, what would Jesus do? I want to change that slightly today and say, WWJP, what would Jesus pray? Would you uh, join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, even as we look at your word today, that we would look at John 17 with new eyes and we'd see those things that apply and that we would use in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me give you a few facts about uh, John 17. It's referred to as the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. That's what John Knox called it. And in fact, uh, we know that the setting is this. Scott's laid it out for us. He's already done the upper room discourse. They've made their way uh, towards the Garden of Gethsemane, even using that object lesson in John 15 about uh, Jesus uh, being the vine, us being the vine, and, and the vine dresser is God, and all of that. And then we get to John 17. Now, this prayer is only recorded in John's gospel. You don't find this in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in fact, remember, this is the last week of Christ's life. Uh, life. It's in this very tightly compacted time uh, on his way to the cross. Uh, it's known as the high priestly prayer, but we should call it the Lord's Prayer. Now, I know Matthew 6, we call that the Lord's Prayer, but that's Jesus instructing the disciples how to pray. We're talking about what Jesus actually prayed. It's, in fact, it's the longest prayer 
recorded by Jesus. There's 632 words in it, and it actually covers 20 centuries. Now, how does that happen? It's because we see, and you'll see this little, uh, in your notes here, this little uh, chart, it's because he's going to be praying for himself, he's going to be praying for the disciples, and he's going to be praying for us, the church. Uh, And so we'll take a, a long look at that. Now, when we talk about prayer, I know for some of you, you go, oh, no, this is snooze time, because you're taken back in time to Thanksgiving dinner or a Christmas dinner or a family dinner, and let's call him Uncle Doug. Uncle Doug is going to pray for the meal, and Uncle Doug starts praying for the meal, and he goes on and on, and he prays for all the missionaries that the church supports. He prays for all the neighbors, five houses down on the left, five houses down on the right, and you're saying, just let me get to the turkey, right? And so some of us look at prayer like, oh, that's that thing you do uh, when you want something, or that's that thing you do when you're begging God for something. But this prayer is different because we are going to see what Jesus asked for. We are going to see how he prayed for himself, what he asked for, how he prayed for the disciples, what he asked for them, and even what he would pray for us 2,000 years later. It's a fascinating study, and we'll jump into it today. So as we look at that, let's get started. Let's look, first of all, at the prayer for himself in verses 1 to 5. Now, we're putting the text on the screen so you can see it with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that you know and that they know that you're the only true God, that Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's a whole prayer in itself. We could take three weeks on this. We're going to spend 30 minutes on this. So let's look at his passion in verse 1. It says, when he lifted up his eyes. Now, I think you can hardly lift your eyes without doing what? Your hands almost automatically follow as you lift your hands. And I can imagine him in the garden. He lifts his hand to the fire. The disciples are watching all this. And they're saying, he's praying for himself. Let's listen in. And so it starts with Father. By the way, prayer always starts with acknowledging who God is in your life. And he is our Abba Father. And of course, Jesus and the Father are connected. Now, someone would ask, hey, well, why does Jesus need to pray? Isn't he God? Right? I mean, does God need to pray? And then those of you who are having a little fun with the text go, well, if he's God, he's part of the Trinity, then it's like, he kind of talking to himself, you know? Like, how does that all work? And so, yes, he is talking to God. And remember, he's God and man, and in his humanity, he is going before God the Father. And so he prayed, so we should pray, and there's this undeniable connection. But why is he praying? Because he says, Father, the, the hour has come. In fact, we could say the hour has finally come. Remember how many times in the last three years the disciples would hear him say, oh, my time has not yet come. Remember, it first happened way back at the beginning in the wedding in Cana, and mom's all freaking out about not enough wine and all this, and he says, hey, mom, my hour hasn't come yet. Back in John 2, we saw that. And then a little later, his half-brothers 
want him to gain some publicity by going to Jerusalem and John 7. We looked at this. Hey, my, my, my time hasn't come yet, but now it is go time. Now, some of you take go time very literally. You have a go bag. If something goes crazy in your world, you got it all. You got $10,000 in 20s in a black duffel bag. You've got your food. You got granola bars. You got water. You got, you know, your fake identity, ah, whatever. But you know what I mean. It's time to go, right? And now it's go time for him, which means it's go time because he knows he's headed to the cross. It is the time. And he knows that it's going to be tough. In fact, when he goes to Gethsemane and he's praying, he's asking God, maybe can we just do this any other way? We're going to look at that in, a, in the next couple of weeks, right? And he knows what he has to do and he is ready. So what's his petition? Well, it's very simple. In your notes there, the petition is glorify me. Glorify the Son. God the Father, glorify your Son. That begs the question, well, why? Why does he have to be glorified? Well, let's look at it. Now, in this text, eight times this word glorify is being used, and it means to, to see or declare something, to demonstrate. It's a, a visible expression of God. I like the way uh, uh, Skip Heisig at Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque says it. He says, glorifying God is this visible expression where you go, wow, wow. And immediately after you see God's glory, what's our next response? Whoa, whoa. Isaiah 6, right? What did Isaiah, he saw, he was high lifted. He saw this, he went, whoa. And then he went, whoa, is me. And we have this juxtaposition of this grandeur, this awesome God. And then in our response, like, whoa, uh, this is almost too much. Thank you, God, for what you're doing. And so this idea is that we put the spotlight on God. And so the first reason he wanted to be glorified, he says, I want to reflect glory back to God. I want to put the spotlight back on God. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, what is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and glorify him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, what's the second reason why he wants to be glorified? Look at verse two. Since you have given him authority over all flesh. Again, interesting, he's using the third person, him, instead of you've given me all authority. But what is the authority he had over all flesh? To do what? To pay for our sins. To offer forgiveness by giving us the free gift of eternal life. And so we have that authority. Indirectly, we as ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ have his authority, delegated authority from him. It'd be kind of like this. Let's go back to Uncle Doug. If Doug comes, to, I'm going to use Doug, I'm using you all day long. So Doug comes to my door and I don't, let's say I don't know him. He knocks on the door and he says, hey, I need to come in. I, I'm doing an inspection in your house. And I say, uh, wait a minute, uh, do I know you? Uh, and he just does this. He opens up his coat, takes out his badge, and it's an FBI badge. He actually is a CIA agent, FBI agent, NSA agent. He's got them all. So he does so on the authority. Well, that's kind of what we do with Jesus. He's our authority. We just show the Jesus badge. Hey, Jesus, Jesus sent me. And so the bottom line is, 
the, the idea is that we reflect God in our lives and Jesus reflected the authority he had been given. Just like the moon has no light of its own, it gets reflected light from the sun, we reflect Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the third reason he has to be glorified is because it says he offers us eternal life. It says there at the end of verse two, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, meaning God the Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it's very clear in this context, he's establishing this idea of monotheism, that there is only one true God. Now that's in complete contrast to the nations that surrounded Israel at that time. There were so many uh, polytheistic religions that had been set in motion. And it is interesting to note, this is the only time that he refers to himself as Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Not me, but Jesus Christ. Very interesting. Fourth reason is that it says he finished his assignment. Look at verse four. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. All right, what was his work that you gave him to do? To live for 33 years? He did healings and miracles and preached and, and changed the world, but ultimately the work wasn't complete till he did what? He died on the cross, was buried, rose again on the third day, and then ultimately ascended into heaven. The work was complete. And ultimately that was all for the glory of God. And that idea of God's glory seen by the ultimate uh, disfigurement and disgrace of being crucified on the cross is caught in that context. So he's done his work. Now he can, he, he can, he can go on. It reminds me of kids who, when my kids were growing up, they always wanted to go to play. They'd get home from school. They'd have their snack. They'd have to do their homework. But after they got their homework done, they could go play, right? So in essence, hey, Jesus is done. He can get back to what? And we'll see that in just a moment. He gets to go back to heaven, right? AKA go out to play, so to speak. So what's our work? What's our purpose? What's our assignment? Well, John Piper says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Or as Charles Barclay says, not Charles Barkley, the NBA player, Barclay, the commentator, there is only one way to glorify God, and that is to obey God. That's why, interesting, why so many people think that ultimately, glorifying God is the most important thing we do on the earth. You say, oh, wait, 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 wait. We can glorify God in heaven, right, Matt? But, yeah, but some people, yeah, I know evangelism is the most important thing we can do because that's what we can't do in heaven. I'm going to take the position that I think the most important thing we can do is glorify God because if you're really glorifying God, look at all the things that are going to happen. If you're really glorifying God, then he's the most important part of your life. He's central to your core. If we're truly glorifying God, we will love others. If we're truly glorifying God, then we're gonna share our faith. We will be concerned about missions. We will engage in worship. We will be committed to authentic relationships. We will care about a dying world apart from Christ because we know all those things ultimately will bring what? Glory to God. Well, the last reason he wants to be glorified is because he says, I want to rejoin you in heaven, Dad. Look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had, remember, past tense, with you before the world existed. Before the world, all this went down, he was in heaven having a grand old time. And then we know in Philippians 2 
the kenosis, he gave up the independent use of his divine attributes by becoming a man, born of a virgin. And we know that story at Christmas. And so when he asked Jesus, when Jesus asked the Father, glorify your son, he's saying, God, the Father, this eternal plan that we set into motion of redemption, it's going to be consummated exactly as we talked about it and has been sovereignly ordained. And so they're both glorified in the process. You see, this, that's just what he prays for himself. We're just getting going. This is unbelievable. Well, let's look at his prayer for the disciples in verses 6 to 18. Now, like uh, Scott has lamented over the last several weeks, we're taking an entire chapter. We can't unpack every single verse. So I made it easy for you in this section uh, just to look at what he, the petitions are. What, what's his, we'll start actually with the activity. What's his process with them? And over those three and a half years, he kind of does a little review of the ministry. And I'm going to just highlight uh, what those things were, okay? First of all, look at verses 6 to 8. He taught them. Look down in verse 7. Now they, they know that everything you had given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. So he taught them. We'd call that discipleship, right? He invested in his men. These verses also point to something that some of you who are theologically astute are saying like, huh, they're yours, they were, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word, and they believed that you sent me. All those things refer to what? God's sovereignty, right? You gave them to me, they are yours, they were chosen, and ultimately, because they were chosen, they believed in God. Now, I'm not going to get into the how they were chosen, how we responded, but he taught them. Secondly, verses 9 to 10, he prayed for them. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. What? Not praying for the world? Wait, 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 wait. Let me read that again. I am praying for them, meaning the disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Again, sovereignty. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. So he's saying his primary prayer is for these men that he spent three plus years with. Now, remember the disciples were lost at one time. So they were, quote, AKA part of the world. In fact, we know in other scriptures, it says that he came to seek and save the lost. So it doesn't, we exclude non-believers, but in this prayer, he says, I'm praying for them. I want no doubt who I'm concerned about. And so he's concerned and we'll tell you why in these next two reasons but he essentially says the disciples are his. And so, God, I'm praying for them. Why? Because look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, a.k.a. protection, and not one of them has been lost, uh, except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's an interesting one. God does have a bit of sense of humor. It's a tragic event. But who is the son of destruction? It is Judas, right? That was prophesied in Psalm 41.9. And we see God's providence and protection right here, except for Judas. And that's a whole nother discussion. And then he sent them, verse 18, and you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So they're sent, right? They're going to be called. They're going to have a mission. They have a calling. And I would suggest to us, if you don't know what your calling is, if you don't know what your purpose on planet earth is as a Christ follower, this is one of the things I would love to have coffee with you and talk about 
What's your passion? How can we get you into the game, so to speak? Well, that's just what he did with them. That was his process. That's what the activities were. Now look at point B. Look at what he asks for them and his prayer for them. And there's several uh, verses in there. And before I he, uh, tell you what he asked the Father for them, I want you to know that this isn't the first time he's been praying for his disciples, right? He prayed for his disciples before he even chose them. He spent all night in prayer wondering, like, who are the final 12? Uh, during his ministry in John 6, we saw the prayer ministry for his disciples. At the end of his ministry in Luke 22, right here in this passage, he's praying for them. And later in heaven, and we know that from Romans 8, 34 and Hebrews 7, 25, that he's going to intercede for these gentlemen. So he asked the Father that they would, number one, again, four things, that they would unify them, according to verse 11, they would unify them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in your world. Uh, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So again, unity, a big deal. Number two, impart joy to them. Look at verse 13, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Where have we seen that idea of joy before? John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly, right? Or how about, John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God's all into joy. If you think God is a cosmic killjoy, you've got the wrong view of God. Now, he even says, consider all joy when you encounter various trials. So, I mean, we can unpack this idea of the theology of joy, but he says, give them joy. Why? This passage has so many questions like, Why? Because he knows what's going to come down the road for them. They're going to suffer. All of them are going to suffer a martyr's death, I think, except for one apostle or disciple. They would constantly need to be reminded when the things aren't going to go as planned, after he's departed, that this mission is worth the cause and the cost. It's all going to be worth it. So give them joy in that journey, Lord. That's what he's praying for them. And then he says... You got to protect them. Verses 14 to 16. By the way, that prayer gets answered that very night, doesn't it? Remember, he's hauled away. They're all there. They run for the hills, but they were protected. Look at this. Verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Because it says in verse 14, because the world hates them. John 16, 33 says, in this world, you will have what? Trouble, right? So we, by the way, we should not think that we are exempt from having trouble in our world. I know this has been one long year. This is our 52nd taping online. We began on March, we didn't have services on March 15th last year, March 22nd. So this is the 52nd time we've filmed these services online. And for some of you, you said, man, I didn't see this coming. Well, none of us did. But here's what I know. As we engage in culture in the world, there are three ways we do this. And maybe you've seen this before, and you've heard the phrase, hate the sinner and the sin. Well, that's not, that's not right. That's kind of the isolation mode. The isolation mode. Or uh, the monastic orders did that. All isolation. Or the insulation mode. That's the pharisaical approach where, hey, I just don't really want to to be very approachable, like, yeah, you do your thing. I'm just going to be in my holy little huddle. Uh, I think we've added one in our culture. 
It's not the isolation mode or the insulation mode. It's called the vegetation mode, right? It's like, I just don't care. Like, <laughs> I'm just kind of apathetic and I don't care about you. You do your, you do you. We've heard that, you do you, I'll do me. That's not Christ-like. That's not how we treat non-believers. We shouldn't treat one another that way either. So then some people have gone the other direction. You know, love the sinner and then love the sin. That's called the imitation mode. So you just jump right into the deep end of the sewer with it and they just wallow in that sin and, and partake in it because you're going to relate and connect with a lost world. But we compromise the truth doing that. That's not what he said. So how do you be in the world but not of the world? Thirdly, that's the infiltration model. That's where you love the sinner, love the person who God loves, the person who's far from Jesus. But avoid the sin. Don't wallow in the sin. That's what he says. And then the last thing he prays for them is sanctify them in truth. Verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Verse 19, and for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus requests that the disciples be sanctified. We become like Jesus when we are in his word. Now, that sanctification process is in the middle of a longer process, right? So before, when you're born, until when you become a Christian, that's called the salvation process. The moment you come to Christ till the end of your life, that's the sanctification process. And at the end of your life, the sanctification process as you go into glory, that's called the glorification process. So he says, sanctify them. Now, you've been wondering this whole time about this little, like, this diagram on your notes, this little chart, and hopefully we'll get this into the, the video. You'll see this at the very end. We're going to fill this in to kind of test our memory of, like, what was this section all about? The last thing he prays for is he prays for unity, and oneness. Now, I can't read all the verses there in verses 20 to 22, but that last one, that they may be one even as we are one. Does that sound familiar? He prayed for that for the disciples, and he knows that's going to be a prayer that he's got to pray for the future church 20 centuries later. Question, do you think we need unity in our church and ABF? How about the church at large? If there has ever been a contentious time in churches across America. It's been this last year. It grieves my heart because this political view is different from this political view and we air our dirty laundry on Facebook and social media. Jesus knew that one of the things he had to pray for us 2,000 years ago is unity for our church and the church universal. And remember, we don't create unity. He's already given us that unity. We just have to maintain it. And then secondly, so we see unity and oneness, that that would be displayed. That's what he prayed for us. And then secondly, he prayed that God's love would be demonstrated. Verses 23 to 26. Look at the end of verse 20, or uh, end of verse 23, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And then down to verse 26, I made known them to your name and I will continue to make it known. Look at this, that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So what's the ultimate act of love? He died on the cross for us and we have been offered that free gift of eternal life. And so when we ask ourselves, 
this question, what does the world see? When they look at us, these two things will stand out. If we have unity, even though we have different political views and different views about diet plans like keto or whatever, right? Well, all the different ways that we differ. But if we show unity, the world says, huh, that's pretty cool. And then we hit them with the other, and that's it. And look at how they love one another. Look at how they get along. That doesn't mean that we are always uniform or uniformity, but there's unity and there's love and there's connection. That's why WWJP, that's what's important. So as you go back and now you look at this little chart, let's take a little review. Let's see how we did. First five verses, we can see that Christ prayed for himself, for his companions, aka the disciples and the church, us. What about? Well, let's fill it in. He prayed about being glorified first. And what was the key word? Obedience. I have done what you've called me to do. Why? And it's filled in your notes there because it brought completion to his work. His death and resurrection brought completion. When he prayed for the disciples, what was it about? It was about protection and sanctification. What's the key word? Ownership. Remember, we talked about being chosen. And why? Because he's not going to be there any longer. He sent the Holy Spirit. He's departed. And then when he prays for the church, he, he asked for us to be unified. Unified. Oneness. Unity. Right? Why? Because that will deliver the world to the inescapable conclusion that there is a God who loves them and that that's a God worth believing in. Amen? So today, wouldn't it be kind of weird that we talk all about prayer, but we don't pray? And so I want you to take a moment in the silence of the room you're in, pause that video, would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment and ask yourself, what would Jesus want me to pray about right now? What is Jesus asking you to pray about? I'll give you a moment. As you've unpaused that video, I'm going to ask you again, what would Jesus want you to pray What's been heavy on your heart? I hope that this message has encouraged you, challenged you, and inspired you. What would Jesus pray? WWJP. Oh, you've come to bring peace, to be to be nearer to us and you've come to bring light to be So you've come to be 
Thank you, ABF. We're so glad you joined us again this week. And again, I just want to remind you, WWJP, what would Jesus pray? Let's go and pray the way Jesus prayed. Have a great week.